Most of the time, faith is easy. Yeah, I trust you. Yeah, I go to church on Sunday. Yes, I do believe our politicians are going to do the right thing. Because I have faith. Well, everything's easy till it ain't easy no more. Fate is fickle, but still some people trust. Some people believe. Some people dive into the unknown, expecting that the universe will catch them, and sometimes it does. Sometimes they fall. But only those willing to make the ultimate sacrifice can take the leap. And today, we're following them off the cliff. My name is Glenn Washington. And from PRX and NPR, welcome to Snap Judgment Storytelling with the Beat. This week, blood and faith. Real people who trust enough to put everything on the line, no matter the consequences. And you know how we do on the Snap. We're going to spin the globe a little bit and follow our first guest to the other side of the world. Now, here is our very good friend. How do you say your name again, Bart? Bartwame Skorupa. Bartwame. 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 There you go. Bart. Perfect. For short, anyway. Bart used to work for a company that had him doing research way out in a rural area of Madagascar. He dived and researched coral reefs. I was diving every day. There was really warm waters. It's a tropical climate. They were so far out, they didn't have electricity, clean water, nothing like that. I wear contacts. At first, I didn't really think much about it. You know, I'd clean my hands with soap and water, and then I'd put my contacts in, and I'd go diving. Rinse, repeat, day in, day out. Six days a week, we worked. There was no drinking of alcohol during those six days. Day seven, it was a little bit different. They had this local alcohol called toga gash, which looks, smells like gas. We went to town. And I remember I woke up the next morning, huge hangover, in my eye. My eye was on fire. It really hurt. It's turned like a milky white. So everybody tells Bart he's being a baby, but he goes out to the field medic to a guy named Craig. Craig was in the military, and then he was a paramedic in London. So he's perfectly kind of suited for looking at first aid responses. And he looks at my eye and has no idea what's going on. But that's okay. Because the company he's working for has this real doctor on call in London. Anytime Craig couldn't do something, he would reach out to this guy. He makes a phone call, tells him what he sees. He puts a little bit of drip in my eye to kind of dye it. And he says, you have a corneal ulcer. It's not bad. It's a bacterial infection. You keep it clean. It should be fine. It should be fine. The next day goes on. The intensity of the pain is huge. When Bart moved his right eye... His left eye moved along with it and burned like a hot poker. So I bandaged both eyes shut. Uh, I, I was completely blind. And I remember the next day, I took off the bandages, and not only was there pain, there was no vision. Though I mean, my left eye was shadows. I go to Craig. I tell him, Craig, I can't see out of my left eye. His response was, you're me. He calls the doctor and says, mate, You've got hours to get out of here. The corneal ulcer at that point wasn't healing. It was growing. I could lose permanently vision in my eye. It would eat away the cornea. It could spread to my right eye. I had to be evacuated. Should be fine. The doctor had been wrong. The eye had been getting worse. And now Bart's got mere hours before he goes blind. And he's three days from a modern medical facility. When he said that, you have hours, you have hours didn't mean anything out there, especially as it was becoming dark. They put out a call along the southern coast telling everyone about BART. Madagascar came through with boats, planes, cars, people, all with the goal of saving his eye. He found a flight to Tulia. We land in Tulia, this semi-large city in the south part of Madagascar. It is flooded, underwater. I get out of the plane, and we start walking towards the terminal. And as we're walking, an Isuzu trooper cuts us off. And this older gentleman said, you are Bart, I've heard you. I have money for you, let us look for other help here. We get into the car, we start driving through Tulia. Water is flowing through the streets. No time for conversation between him and I. Another car pulls in front of us and he cuts it off and starts honking his horn. It's a nun. So I'm thinking, well, great, now we're crossing God. Drives me to the clinic. It's this Catholic mission I can see by the sign with the cross and the caritas symbol. He drops us off in front and says, there is a Dr. More here who can help with your eye. 
and he leaves. Bart walks into this Spartan room, no electricity. There's only natural light coming in, but it's still pretty dim. And this guy sitting at a desk in these blue overalls, and he's kind of dusty, and I'm thinking he's some sort of janitor or some sort of mechanic that was working there. And, and I try in English, is Dr. Moray here? And he nods, and he points to another door. I see what was probably the world's first ophthalmoscope, and it had this old leather chin strap, and I sat down, thinking he'll probably walk in soon. And the same guy followed me in, and he starts adjusting the ophthalmoscope. And then it begins to enter my mind, this guy's the doctor. He looks at me through the ophthalmoscope and says, you have a corneal ulcer. And he said it with a slight stutter. And he says, we have to cut it out. And I thought, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm I'm cool. I I realize I have something in my eye. Uh, I'd like some medication. We we have to cut it now. And those words just hung in the air. And he says, lie down. I lay down on the bed, and I hear metallic clicks, like somebody's putting something on a metallic plate. But Bart still can't see much. He can only ask. What's he doing? He's getting some instruments ready. What kind of instruments does he have? You really don't want to know. Another nun comes in with a flashlight. The first thing Dr. Moray said when he got to my side was, don't blink. And I thought, you are putting a knife in my eye. How am I not going to blink? And I said, I I don't know if I can do that. And Bart's just wondering why Dr. Moray can't just hold his eye with one hand. And he looks down and he sees that the doctor's left hand isn't moving. Then he realizes it hasn't moved since he started. Oh my God, he's half paralyzed. The stutter all of a sudden made sense. And now I'm beginning to think, how safe is this going to be? And before I could do anything else, the nun takes the flashlight in one hand and opens my eye with the other and holds it there. They gave me popsicle sticks that I put into my mouth. And then it happened. It was a shot of white pain. Pain like I've never felt before and my eye began to recess into my skull. And as quickly as it happened, it was over. It's done. Both of my eyes were squeezed shut, and there was a moment before I opened them where I had this full trust that when I opened my left eye, it would be back to normal. I opened my eyes, and it was black. I was blind. First thought in my mind was, this is permanent. I'll never see out of this eye again. And he comes back to me, and he says, you'll come back in two days, and we'll look at it again. And after two days, I went back to the clinic, and they start looking at my eye, and and I can start seeing shadows again. And then the next day, I can see figures. And then the day after that, I had this Coca-Cola can, and I could start to see the differences between the C and the O and the L. It was there, even in color. And then by the end of the second week, my eye's back to normal. He had the capabilities. He had the skills. And though I had to take this leap of faith, he was confident in his abilities to complete that. And he actually healed my eye. Bart found out during a stay that Dr. Murray had actually spent his life working in Madagascar and England and had a stroke that impaired his entire left side, but not his right. And he told me these things as I was there, that we only have one life to live. And it's not what we do for ourselves, but what we do for others that will last. And I thought about my life and what I could do. I made a judgment then on my own life that when I got back, things were going to be different. And they have. When Bart got home, he started his own nonprofit. It's called Groundwork Opportunities, or GO for short. He coordinates volunteers and donors to provide resources to people that have the skills to change their communities. That piece was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. Go with the undertow. Where I need to go I pay heed to your words no more And I go with the undertow Peaceful Valley, Spokane, Washington, two guys. The first, Kiwi Neff, feels everyone is mad at him. His girlfriend about to have his baby is mad at him. His daughter is mad at him. He's mad at himself. The second guy, 
He's in worse shape, standing on top of the Monroe Street Bridge, looking down, down to the swollen Spokane River. He's been here before, but this time, this time he's going to do it right. Doesn't think about the water, closes his eyes tight, 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 takes that last final step into nothing. He's underwater before he realizes he doesn't want to die, but it's too late. The angry river, broken leg, broken shoulder, broken man, slam against rocks and trees and dirt. And all he can do between mouthfuls of water is scream. Kivi Neff is on the riverbank and hears that scream. Now, he had a powerful voice. He definitely wanted to live. His cry for help was strong. And so I went and grabbed my bike, and, and I rode up, and I, I got to this vista at the old brass finder's place, and I could see the guy in the water. And I thought, that guy's dead. What's your plan? My plan was to, A, um, not die trying to rescue this guy, and B, try to rescue this guy. And that was about really all I had for a plan. So you see him moving? Moving really fast. There's a whole lot of water moving quick. Honestly, I really thought this guy was a goner. The Spokane River takes a lot of people, and he's in the middle of it, hanging on to a dead branch. I'm going to be let's go. I scrambled up the riverbank, got back on my bike, headed downstream, and I got to this footbridge that they have. There's people around with ropes and buoys on the end of them. And I'm going, yes, yes, right on, you know, cool. I came up to this guy with a rope on my bike, and I said, he's coming. Try to catch him at the bridge. He was turning his back to me as he answered me, saying, that won't work. And I'm telling him he's coming right now. I mean, not tomorrow, not in one minute. He's coming right now. There was an instinctive moment I wanted to clock the guy and take this rope from him and try to save the guy. And then this was like all of a millisecond because my adrenaline's running. I'm, I'm in overdrive. And, I mean, it just must have been one split second later that he just went floating right by them. And they probably felt pretty stupid. Kiwi knows this river leads to a falls. And if you go down the falls, it's all over. I took off like a jackrabbit as fast as I could. I got to where I got, and sure enough, he's flowing just like the river flowed, and he's, that's when he's coming to that wide area where it slows down. This is a place I can go in after him. I can take, a, I can take the chance. So you're thinking, it's now or never. I've got to go in, or I'm not going to go in at all. Yeah, absolutely. This was the last chance. This was no man's land. So you're like, you're ready at any moment to strip off, naked, and go into the water. That was the hard part, because I knew I might end up being naked in front of a bunch of people, and I didn't really want that. And I was working myself up to that, going, this person's going to die. You're going to have to. And I don't wear underwear. So I was going like, you are going to be butt naked. You know, if you're going after this guy, and I was like, that's it. I don't care. I'm going to be butt naked. Okay. At this point, I have a spot I'm going after him, and I hear somebody yelling from a long ways off, don't go in, and then they're, and they're running, and they, I hear it again, don't go in, we'll have true drowning victims. And I'm like, no, you know, I'm going in after this guy. I went in after him, and racer dived, swam up to him as fast as I could, and stopped about five feet from him, and I aggressively said to him, don't touch me. Don't touch me. And he said, I can't move. And I said, "That's that, that, turn on your back. Because he was facing me, and I'll pull you in by your shirt. It's cold. Yeah, it's really cold, but I'm not feeling the cold at all. I'm not, I'm in two, I'm in shock kind of with this guy. But I'm swimming really hard, and the channel with his rapids was quickly coming up. The shore was just moving fast. So I was kind of like, oh no, you know, this is, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. 
the fire department, the guy who had the rope and the buoy, caught up to us and threw us a rope. Oh, let's like, grab that rope. Grab that rope. He was able to grab the rope. They brought him in and rescue personnel were all coming, running, charging really fast at that point. He was incoherent, he couldn't talk. He was a big guy. It took 10 men to get him up from the riverbank. There was some nice guy there that asked me if I wanted my clothes. I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and I left. I just, you know, I was like, well, okay, time to go. How'd you feel? I was pretty high after because it was like, I didn't blow my own horn at all. I didn't, I didn't have to. Everybody comes up and the news crews are calling and all these people, yes, he's amazing, he's a great guy. <laughs> are you proud? I'm proud for, you know, people that can say, that love me and care about me and say, you know, my father did this or my friend did this. But uh, myself, more humbled by the whole experience because in a way, you know, this guy, Giving me the opportunity to go in there and save him has helped me tremendously, you know. So, in a way, this guy saved my life. In addition to being a local hero in Spokane, Keevy received the Carnegie Hero Award. As a Carnegie Hero, he got $6,000, a medal, and financial aid for his college education. Please understand, Keevy is a trained lifeguard. Do not try this at home. The piece was produced by our own Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, and Pat Masidi Miller. After the break, more stories about people who put everything on the line. We'll be right back. Snap Judgment. to Snap Judgment, the blood and faith episode, and please understand there are different types of faith. As far as Maribel knew, she was blessed by God. She knew that she believed it with all her heart, so when the trials and tribulations arrived, the die had already been cast. Maribel has always had luck on her side. So much so that maybe luck isn't even the right word for it. Maribel is downright blessed. She's always felt loved by a great number of friends and family, and most especially, God. God's love for me is something big. It's like the heart is beating and you want to hold it in your hands and never let it get it away. Maribel came to America with her two children and her husband, Lorenzo, from Peru. And she and Lorenzo made a simple but happy life for themselves. Like all Latinos, we arrived in this country with the American dream. But for me, I believe I was not an American dream. For me, it was everything. One of the people who helped Maribel get her first jobs here was 83-year-old Laura Wilson. I get involved in helping people. They, they just come into my path. I don't, I don't look for them. They come to me. Soon, the two started talking every day and became close friends. So Laura was one of the first people to hear about it when it happened. 
y de repente un día caí. Suddenly one day I collapsed coming from work. I came home with a fever and I couldn't breathe. They took me to the hospital. They gave me oxygen because my lungs were no longer sending oxygen to my heart. I was going to have a cardiac arrest. Maribel had contracted tuberculosis at the age of four, and breathing problems had plagued her throughout her adult life. They sent me home with a tank of oxygen. I thought it was like the other times, like in my country when I would get really sick, but then recuperate. But I realized a lot later that it wasn't like that. Laura knew Maribel needed more care. And so she drove her to a nearby lung clinic for the homeless and needy. The clinic was founded by Dr. Mark Gladwin, a lung specialist at the nearby hospital. He inspected her and was shocked by what he found. The, the tuberculosis had really ravaged her lungs, and she had severe scarring or fibrosis. There was almost no lung there at all. In fact, she had large holes in her lung and was stuck to the chest wall and were irreversibly damaged. Dr. Gladwin took care of Maribel as best he could, but she just kept getting worse. She was hospitalized more and more often, and soon she couldn't function without oxygen. And since she was still an illegal alien, she had no health insurance for expensive medications. One day, Dr. Gladwin pulled Laura aside. Because I said, well, tell me what I do now. And he said, there's nothing we can do because what she needs is a transplant, but without papers, we cannot do anything. And we just cried together. We did it. So they sat me down and explained they couldn't do the transplant if I didn't have insurance. So at that point, I just wanted to die. I think my faith failed me at that moment. I drove home crying all through the 395 at 9, wanting to crash my car. Up until that moment, I thought that no problem was too big for me to handle, because I had considered myself to be a very strong woman. I told the Lord. I didn't know where to go. Maribel begged the Lord to save her, but for the first time, it didn't seem like he was listening. Maribel was put into hospice care. The doctors all told her that she should fly back to Peru so she could die in her home country. When she was almost, according to everybody, was ready to die and were getting ready to where they would bury her, how they were going to tell the children, then I think that's where the energy went into me very strongly, that we were not going to let her die. I started pushing hard. Laura put her foot down and picked up the phone. <laughs> I've taught everybody, it isn't what you know, but who you know and who are, you're not afraid to go, no. She called friends, she called doctors, she called through the phone book, and she achieved the impossible. She found Maribel insurance through a special program. It was something, but the insurance wouldn't examine Maribel for a transplant until she could prove that she could afford the $60,000 copay. So it was back to the phones. Laura called the Peruvian Consul General, Fernando Quiroz. So I went to the hospital thinking that I was going to find somebody on the limit of life. But then I found a young, beautiful woman. She was full of life. I said, this is impossible. This young woman will not die. Fernando organized a website, a bank account, and a press conference for Maribel. Univision, we have Telemundo, one or two uh, radio. And after people saw Maribel on TV, they felt the same thing Fernando did the first time he met her. There were many people collecting money for Maribel. Most of it was collected dollar by dollar. Calls constantly, $5, $1, $2. Hundreds of people became involved and worked day and night. Here's one of the friends that Maribel made, Melissa Gouffre. Everybody that came across her path was drawn to her in such a way that they wanted to fight for her. There was no way once you met this woman that you wouldn't fight for her. Finally, they raised $60,000. Everything was coming together perfectly. Was it luck or was it something more? I felt, and everyone else felt, like God was directing everybody to work for her and to fight for her, and that it was almost like everything had lined up just perfectly so that this event would occur, that she would have the transplant. They celebrated and thought the transplant was only a surgery away. But the very day Maribel was approved to receive her transplant, Fernando got a call. It was from Lorenzo, Maribel's husband. He was crying, frantic. He said that Maribel had decided not to accept the transplant. Fernando rallied the troops. He came from the consulate. It was snowing. He came and picked me up and we went. 
When they got there, Maribel confessed that she had been quietly speaking with Jehovah's Witnesses over the past few weeks, and she had decided to convert. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that blood is sacred and cannot be ingested or transferred from person to person, even in emergencies, and Maribel needed that blood transfusion to accept the lung transplant. I was all afternoon telling her, don't you see that we've gone through all this, Maribel? Do you remember? Don't you realize that you have to live for your children? But she would just never looked up. Just, the Lord is greater, the Lord is greater. My interest in the Lord is greater, that's all she would say. It was a different Maribel than I had ever realized existed. It was not the Maribel that I had known. We never ever in our wildest dreams would have imagined her faith would challenge all of the advocates that had been fighting for her for so long. You're building a building and you're almost at the top and whammo, it all comes down. We had lost hope. We had completely lost all hope. Así sufriendo, llorando. It was the suffering, crying and thinking I was failing everyone and feeling like I was ungrateful. That was hard. For Maribel, this wasn't about her children or her friends or anyone else. This was between her and God. He had shown her grace. And in return, she wanted to offer him the ultimate sacrifice. Her life. I was being faithful because he was and has been faithful to me because he kept me alive in the hospital. I was told twice that I would die, and I was giving back what I received, fidelity. I only wait for his will, his will. Maribel cried for days. She didn't speak to anyone. She begged the Lord to tell her what to do. Confío. I trusted that the Lord always sent a sign. I told him that night, Lord, show me who can speak your words to me. Speak to me. And it was like that. God came in the form of a social worker named Cecilia. She was a stranger, had never spoken to any of them before. When Cecilia held my hand, I felt electricity. Really, she didn't speak my language, but I felt electricity. She looked into my eyes and said to me, we're only going to do what you want. I'm going to respect your decision, but I think God loves you and wants all the best for you. Her eyes filled with tears, and those eyes that were looking at me, it was like if God was talking to me. I felt that electric current in my heart, and I knew, I said, thank you, Lord. The next day, Maribel called Fernando and told him she would accept the surgery. I immediately called Laura, Melissa, I called everybody, and we went to visit her and, and, and give her full support. It's now been one year since Maribel got her lungs. She's had a beautiful outcome. She very quickly was off oxygen, gained 30 pounds. She's, she's sort of the poster child for a success of a lung transplant. I do things I never did when I was healthy. I never used to run. I'd get tired. Now I go to the gym, I run on the treadmill, and when I run, I think, my God, I'm running. I can't believe it. This is Maribel's toast to all of her friends at her one-year anniversary party. Que Dios lo bendiga y diga God blesses you and that she loves you very much. And my siblings and my family love you. And her children and her husband. And all of the people here. So whether you believe it's God or luck or fate, there's one thing you've got to admit. Somebody is looking out for this girl. Keep running, Maribel. Keep running. Thank you, Stephanie Fu. And thank you, Sarah, Jesse, Natalia Yeager and Renzo Gorio. Now, you like the mighty outdoors, huh? You know how to hold a compass, huh? You can chase down a deer and have it roasting on a spit before most people get up in the morning, huh? Well, so could John Campbell. John knows his way around a forest and rule number one, the forest don't care. It was a, a backpacking trip with uh, me and a buddy of mine, Randy. We were going to Kings Canyon National Park, but he hadn't been backpacking in some time, so I was kind of leading the charge on this. 20 miles in or so, we get to Ray Lakes, set up camp, 
enormously picturesque. We've got mountain ranges all around us. We're camped right on the edge of one of the lakes and we're fishing. The sun was dropping down, the stars were coming out. I was sitting on a a rock that was pretty low to the ground. My friend Randy went up on a rock that was probably seven feet off the ground. I'm ready to kind of pack things up and go in the tent. I began to gather my things, and as I turned to put my things aside, I heard a sound. When I heard the sound, I, I ran over to him. He was unnaturally spread out on the ground, and he was unconscious. I turned him over, and I saw a head wound probably five inches across, and I could actually see his skull. His eyes looked at me, but they kind of looked through me. Blood was spilling out of his head. At that point, I thought he was dead. So I was at a a crossroads where I needed to make a decision. I needed to do the few things that I thought I could do. Stop the bleeding, keep him warm, keep him hydrated, and then get help. At this point, it's pitch black. I'm off and on the trail. I'm sprinting, I'm jumping over boulders. I'm running as fast as I can through the wilderness at 10,000 feet. I was jacked up on adrenaline. And I cut left. I ran into a tent. Uh, A couple come out of the tent. They see me and probably look at me in horror because I'm covered in blood myself and yelling frantically for help. I explain the situation. My friend has fallen off a rock, split his head open. I need help. Do you know where the ranger station is? They knew where it was. They had passed it earlier that day. They agreed they would go to the ranger station. I would go back to my friend, assist him in any way I could. And at this point, I don't know if he's still alive. I ran back to my friend. When I got to him, he was in and out of consciousness. Finally, the couple showed up. I immediately asked him, where's the ranger? There was no ranger. My heart just dropped. The only other option we had at that point was that if they were willing to hike over this loose granite pass, which is a 12,000 foot pass at 11 o'clock at night, hiking five miles to Charlotte Lake Ranger Station. And they agreed to do it. It was just me and Randy, and Randy was not cooperative. He didn't know the level. At that point, he thought he could still walk out. It's probably 5.45, 6 o'clock in the morning, and I hear voices in the distance. I'm hoping it's the Rangers, and it was. It was three of them. They immediately stabilized him. Helicopter shows up, lands in in this beautiful, pristine meadow in the Ray Lakes area. They load him up. They take his gear, there's, there's room for the pilot, there's room for, for Randy to lay down, and that's it. They weren't carrying me out. And as they were leaving, they hoped that I had a nice walk out. So I hiked out 23 miles and I called my wife. How's Randy? Oh, Randy's fine. He got 60 stitches and he's discharged. He's already gone. I just went through the most traumatic experience of my life. He's great, doesn't remember a single thing. Many thanks to John Campo for sharing his story. It was produced by our own Mitzi Ma. Now, do you have a story to share with the Snap? Do what John Campo did. Let us know on the story-sharing website, snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment, the Blood and Faith episode, will return right after the break.
to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and we've been sharing stories about people who have taken the leap, run off the cliff, and waited for the universe to catch them, or not. Our next story recounts a very real tragedy, and because this is a true story, a wartime story, it may not be appropriate for young children or sensitive listeners. Liberia's civil war reached Peterson Sonia's house when he was 15 years old. I'm Peterson K. Sonia. Rebels were closing in on the capital, and the army was panicked. The civil war disintegrated into ethnic violence, and Peterson watched Liberians hunt Liberians. Yes, it worried me a lot because I see myself as a Liberian and a Liberian hunting me, so it worried me a lot. The government handed out weapons to anyone who would fight. The army targeted Peterson's tribe, the Gio, because they were associated with Charles Taylor's rebels. His family ran from house to house, farm to farm, escaping from the, the soldier, and eventually ran to the capital, Monrovia. I went to St. Peter Lutheran Church. They huddled into the St. Peter's Lutheran Church compound, a tall white sanctuary surrounded by a low cement wall. I went there to seek refuge. Thousands of people took refuge in the church. They thought they'd be safe, but the soldiers hunted them down. We were there and we were still hunted again by those singing soldiers that we escaped from, from our very home. The soldiers, many of them teenagers and boys, many of them drunk or high, would pass the gate of the church compound and threaten that one day they would massacre the families living there. Each time they pass around, tell that one of these days we will enter here and kill everybody that here and carry on our massacre. But the families had nowhere else to go. They made a small life for themselves inside the compound. They took water from the well and brought their businesses from home. When we first entered the compound, things were fun. People carried their small, small businesses that they have. What kinds of things were people selling? People have their dry fish, their biscuit, and uh, all of this stuff they were selling in the compound. And at night, they would gather together to sleep in the sanctuary. At night come, we spread our clothes on the benches and lie down. The father would sleep, would lie down under the bench, and then you sleep right under him. The men slept on the benches, the small boys underneath, and the women and girls in an adjacent school building. One evening, armed soldiers came and rattled the gate. Again, they said they would kill everyone inside. Later that night, they came back. 11, 12, they came back. No. That's the turn on the Karen's serious killing. Started to kill people. The soldiers used whatever weapons they could. Knives, bayonets, machine guns. You got uh, M16, you had AK. These are the guns they were using. The room turned bright with flashes of gunfire. Peterson could see the faces of the killers and the victims falling from the pews in strobes of blue light. When they were firing, the whole plate turned bright, very bright. That like you could see those guys, you could see the kidding. He felt himself become wet with blood. And blood was pulling now, like you lying down in a river. So they start killing, start killing. People were crying all over the place. People were crying, women upstairs in the school building. Some attempted to escape the slaughter. And when you making a attempt to escape, that way they kill more people again. They will grab you, they kill you. People that were escaping that night were killing them. I was still on the bench, and my father left the bench down for the first time he came down to me. He covered me up. His father lay over him, a shield from the rain of bullets. Peterson lay still under his father while the killing went on. The armed men left, and then they came back with more ammunition. Peterson and his father lay together beneath the pew until dawn. And finally, his father spoke. After the studio had left, he told me that, oh, Peterson, I've been hit by a bullet. He had been hit. He was bleeding. His words came slowly, and he rolled off of his son and onto the ground. He rolled down. He told me that he was thirsty. His father managed to say that he was thirsty. So Peterson climbed over the bodies and into the courtyard to get water from the well. 
when I went outside to get water for him to drink. But the well was red with blood. The whole water was bloody up. So he turned back, trying to reach his father, still lying on the church floor. But the bodies were so many, there was barely room to walk. But Bali was just all over, all over. There is no place that you could even put your foot. Because Bali was all over. No way you could walk and even get so. Bali was all over. So when I came back to my father, by the time he was there, he died from the wound. When I ran, I came outside, saw my mother with my brother, my sister, then alone, my auntie, start crying. I gave her the news now that, oh, mama, they killed my dad. Everyone fled. Everybody just went different, different direction. Peterson and a small group of boys tried to seek refuge in the nearby USAID compound, but their clothes were bloodied and they were turned away. They decided to try to walk out of the city past the army checkpoints and across the rebel line to Charles Taylor's rebel-held territory. Yeah, I think we have to escape to see how we can make our way to Charles Taylor boys and to the rebel line. At the first checkpoint, soldiers stripped Peterson and his friends from the waist up, lined them up on the roadside, and asked them to state their tribal affiliation. We were... Five boys in number. The first checkpoint. They said, where are you people from? Where you're trapped? They took one boy behind a building and shot him. They executed him and killed him. Peterson and the rest escaped and managed to hitch a ride to the rebel line. How come we cross and went to the rebel line? When we got there, I saw some of my cursing, my older brother. Peterson's brothers, his cousins, his friends, they all took up arms and joined in the fighting. He said I should join him. I said no. But he refused to join the rebels. He had seen enough killing. People will always tell me that they kill your father. They kill all of these people. Why you don't want to join the rebels? I said no. If I even join and take arm, it will not bring no people's life back. It will definitely not bring their life back. Six hundred people died in the Monrovia Lutheran Church Massacre. Peterson Sonia kept his promise, however, to never take up arms. He escaped to the Ivory Coast and lived as a refugee until the war in Liberia ended. Today, he is the founder of the Lutheran Church Massacre Survivors Association and is working with other survivors for reconciliation and reparations. The story was produced by none other and SNAP's own Anna Sussman. You're listening to SNAP Judgment, the blood and faith episode. And now our next story. Our next story, actually our next guest, ladies, our next guest is one of those people. He's tall, buff, hair, all nice, chiseled, jaw. I thought he was a pretty boy and I was going to push him down the stairs, but it turns out this brother's a Marine. We fought. My freshman year of college at the University of Wisconsin, 9-11 happened. And as it did for many men and women around the country, it galvanized us into a desire to serve. I said to myself, you know, it's time for you to kind of put your money where your mouth is and, and to join and go fight alongside everybody else. I enlisted as a, as a rifleman in the, uh, the Marine Infantry, and we were deployed with the surge to Iraq in 2007. So we went to the Anbar province. It was still a, a very nasty place to be. It was, a, it was a pretty rough deployment. A lot of people who come back from that situation, they, they always miss it just a little bit because it does create this sense of making everything around you that much more important. Everything becomes much more real. Life becomes much sweeter. Beer tastes all the better. Came back home in November 2008. At the end of my four years, I had all my fingers and all my toes. A lot of my friends hadn't been so lucky. I had a mother that... I owed it to, to get out because it was taking more years off her life than it was mine. So I came home. I started to apply to uh, graduate schools. And then in uh, January of last year, the earthquake hit Haiti. 
that sight there of those buildings crumbling. The images that are coming across the screen are just chaos. Screaming all over the place. A city that's full of dust and debris and people running and covered in dust. UN soldiers with those familiar. Reports are coming out that there's mobs that are looting, waving machetes in the streets and burning tires, and kind of had this urge to go help. It just made sense. I looked at the scenes coming out of Port-au-Prince and I said, it's really no different from Fallujah. I looked at my girlfriend and I said, I think I should go down there. I come up with a lot of stupid ideas and she normally swats them down. And I fully expected her to swat this one down because, you know, it was going to be crazy and it was going to be dangerous. But uh, without hesitation, she said, I think that's a good idea. It was pretty incredible. I started calling people that I knew. I made a deal with her that if I could get one or two guys that I trusted to go with me, that I would go. Because I wasn't crazy enough to go down by myself. I went on Facebook and said, I'm going to go to Haiti. I could use the help. And within minutes, uh, William McNulty, who's with me right now, called me up. And I said, Jake, I'm in. (laughs) He said he's in. Uh, I read that Facebook post. And so I said, uh, hey, man, I can do it. Shortly thereafter, a friend of mine called me up and said, you know, I'll buy everybody's plane tickets. And that's when this, I guess, dream or this crazy idea really became a reality. About two days later, we left for the Dominican Republic. I jumped on a plane, uh, met Jake down in Santo Domingo, and the whole effort snowballed. About 16 hours after that, we were inside Port-au-Prince. Well, coming in from the border, you could start to see slowly the devastation. The closer and closer you got, the more destroyed everything around you was until finally you got into the heart of Port-au-Prince and it was just, it was it was a big rubble pile, the whole thing. We basically struck a deal with the Jesuits prior to coming down that we could use their compound as a base of operations and then use our skills that we learned in the military, including uh, combat life-saving skills and help plug ourselves in somewhere into this disaster response. And instead, for at least the first two days, it was just us and the Haitians. And we were in some of the worst uh, hit areas of Port-au-Prince. Yeah, I mean, it it was incredible. Camps that had literally hundreds of traumatic injuries, and they had not yet seen a doctor. We're talking broken backs, broken legs, amputated limbs, limbs that had literally been shorn off with falling debris. And they had nothing but a gym sock wrapped around the end of around the end of it. That was really our welcome to Port-au-Prince moment when we walked into that first camp. Going into these refugee camps, what was remarkable to me was the way that we were received by these these people, these victims. You know, they were so happy to see you, and they were so calm considering the situation. As we were setting up to begin triaging them, they were triaging themselves, and that was just kind of mind blowing. Realistically, we probably treated about 500 people that day. At least a few dozen amputated limbs. We had two broken backs, a broken hip. Uh, We delivered a baby. We stabilized the patient, and we did that by uh, making splints. And we made splints from everything from... uh, Garage doors and (laughs) and windowsills and sticks. I mean, anything we had, um, we we would tear it apart and, and, and make a splint out of it. We were trying to wash out our clothes with, uh, with some water at night, shower up with what we could out of buckets and you know, wash the, the filth and the, you know, the blood off. And we'd go to bed, we'd maybe drink some beers if we could find them and then uh, wake up the next morning and, and get at it again. The experiences you have in Iraq and Afghanistan, you've responded to suicide bombers, you've responded to mass casualty situations. I think that from our perspective, there's nobody that's better suited for that environment than a combat veteran. And not because of their ability to shoot or throw grenades or anything like that, but their ability to manage the chaos. And that's what this situation was down there. It was pure chaos, and veterans have great ability for time to kind of slow down for them for them to really pick out what the urgent needs and problems are to address. The long-term solution is going to lie with those Red Crosses and the International Medical Corps, and there's no doubt about that. But in that immediate aftermath, there was definitely a need for these small teams to get into these areas that were just overwhelmed with injuries. And once we were going out and not finding those injuries is when we said, okay, we packed up and we left Haiti. 
And so Jake and I, you know, and the rest of the team, we all sat down and you know, we just decided that I think we have something here. I think we have a model for something. We have over 2 million veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. The skills and experiences that they've had translate remarkably well to disaster zones. All the polls say that our veterans want to continue service in some capacity. They, they feel like they're almost useless. There's an obvious symbiotic relationship between the two, and nobody's connecting these dots. The organization is called Team Rubicon. Our mission statement is very specific. We provide this first response capability in the immediate aftermath of large disasters. First, we went back to Haiti on a, uh, on a cholera mission. Shortly after getting back from Haiti, that massive earthquake tsunami hit Chile. We sent a team down we there. sent a, a training mission to the Thai-Burma border. Shortly after that, the flooding in Pakistan. After Pakistan, we went to Sudan. What we were doing brought all these veterans together in this spirit of service. And they could easily define progress. Uh, they could easily see that they saved a life, which progress uh, to a lot of veterans was a hard thing to define for many years serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. In a refugee camp with a ton of injuries, uh, when you're presented with somebody that is near the end of their life, if you're able to save that person, that is a tremendous experience and that's and that gives you a feeling of self-worth that you can carry with you for the rest of your life. Many thanks to Jake Wood and William McNulty. If you want to find out more, go to our website snapjudgment.org. You've been listening to our Blood and Faith episode. Thanks for coming with us today. I'd like to first thank my first mate, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, and Team Snap. I am so proud. Anna Sussman, Stephanie Fu, Rita Daniels, and Will Urbina. And the Steptaculous, Pat Masidi Miller, Renzo Gorio, Natalia Yeager, and Mitzi Mock. What I need you to do is go to your closet, get some construction paper, Fold it into an envelope, put some love inside, and send it to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They need it. Let them know it came from the snap. And you know those things at the hardware store that shake the paint? Well, I got some public and some radio. Put it all into one, and what came out? It was PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX to the ORG. And even though this is not the news, in fact, you could take me into the bowels of the facility, strap me to a waterboard, put steel blades under my fingernails, bring in that crazy-looking dude from those old James Bond movies, I don't care, still, under no circumstance, is this the news? But, 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 this is NPR. <laughs>